So we're in Acts 17. We covered verses 16 through 21 the last time we were in Acts, and we're going through this book verse by verse, find ourselves in actually a very popular um, section uh, where Paul is speaking to a group of individuals that are kind of like the philosophical leaders of the day. So let's read this story. Let's all stand as we look at our passage together. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, uh, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed, some whom also were Dionysius, an Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, Lord, as we embark upon this passage, we realize that there's probably some landmines that we can fall in, some rabbit trails that we can chase, but I pray that we not do that and that we can focus on what it is that you're trying to say to us and that we as a congregation might be able to um, appreciate the principles that you're giving us and live by them and be the kind of people that can relate well to our culture and not just sit and point fingers. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would move in us in a powerful way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On the tragic morning of September 11th, 2001, the Brooklyn Tabernacle lost four of its members. One victim was a police officer. Uh, the officer's funeral was held at the church building. And Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York City at the time, had been asked to share a few thoughts. In his book, You Were Made for More, Jim Cimbala, who is the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, records what Mayor Giuliani shared on that day. I quote, 
You know, people, I've learned something through all this. Let me see if I can express it to you. When everybody was fleeing that building and the cops and the firefighters and the EMS people were heading up into it, do you think any one of them said, I wonder how many blacks are up there for us to save? I wonder what percentage of whites are up there. How many Jews are there? Let's see, are these people making $40,000 a year or $24,000? No, when you're saving lives, they're all precious. And that's how we're supposed to live all the time. How would you want the cops to treat you if you were on the 75th floor that day? Would you want them to say, excuse me, but I've got to get the bosses out first? Not exactly. I confess I haven't always lived this way, but I'm convinced that God wants us to do it. He wants us to value every human life the way he does. Now, you may or may not agree with the politics of Rudy Giuliani. Frankly, it doesn't matter. But I think we can agree that on this, he spoke truth. I think we can also agree that the world that you and I live in seems to be unhinged, right? And yet here we are as God's representatives, only human representatives, I should say, on the planet. And we're not to pick and choose the people that we're willing to help. Every individual needs help. Every person needs the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. They all need to be rescued from a whore of eternity outside of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that God has you and me in different contexts. We have different people that we run into, different people that we relate to, and that's cool. But here's a, a common question we all have to ask ourselves. How effective are we with the people that we know? Now, I don't think that by sharing this story, God is asking us to, you know, spend time with the philosophical elite and stand before a group like this in such an academic way. It's great that there are people like that, like the Apostle Paul, right? But are we willing to give a loving witness in our sphere of influence, in the context that God has us? Are we willing to do that? Maybe the need of the hour is urgency. I mean, all these flimsy excuses about time and money and secondary disagreements and all these other commitments we have, you know, they kind of fall off when we realize that the world is filled with people who are in desperate need and they do not realize that the building is on fire. Urgency. We also need some wisdom in how we approach people. And that's why I think this story can be very instructive for us. So we pick it up in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now I'd like to think that Luke, who is a friend of the Apostle Paul, who was a meticulous 
historian of the early church had to have a feeling of great satisfaction as he tells the story of my friend Paul was standing before the Areopagus giving testimony to the gospel. It'd be like one of us saying, you know, my friend stood before the faculty at Harvard and he gave a defense of the gospel. I mean, you would have a, a great sense of pride and I mean that in every, every good sense. This renowned setting of the best minds in philosophy being met by the best mind in the early church. And it was a great opportunity for the gospel. Now, Paul starts his address with a consideration for his context, right? So he, he realizes the environment that he is in, and he realizes the, the impetus that he has to have to show kindness and respect to his audience. Now, in saying that and trying to relate to his audience, we know that Paul is still very bold. We know that later on in this message, he confronts their idol worship. So it's, it's not that he's afraid to confront issues. It's that he's trying to get some, some common point to which he can relate to his audience and then from there launch into connecting with the gospel. And what he says is that he acknowledges the religious passions and desires of his audience. It's a good thing. The descriptions of ancient authors support Paul's assessments. They're, they're looking for something beyond themselves. That's a good thing, that religious desire. Now, obviously it led them to things that Paul addresses later with these idols, but it was something that actually early authors also acknowledged about Athens. Sophocles, who lived several centuries before this time, before the book of Acts, states that it is common knowledge that Athens is most pious towards the gods, that's plural, gods, because of their pantheistic culture. Pisanias says they are conspicuous not only for their humanity, but also for their devotion to religion. So what Paul acknowledges is something that others had seen as well. And as Paul walked through the city, he observed these objects of worship. Now, he did not see an actual God. He did not view a living thing. He viewed an, an object or number of objects. Paul referred to what they worshiped, not who they worshiped. Their worship object was a thing, a what, not a personal God at all. It would have been futile for Paul, by the way, to begin with some Old Testament passages that talked about the Messiah and how the sacrifices point to Christ. He would have done that in a synagogue of Jews, but that's not where he's at. He's in a, an environment of the best philosophers of the day. See, God is seconding what I'm saying. <laughs> Should listen close. 
So Paul begins with a declaration of this unknown God inscription. And he says, you know what? That's true. True for you. Now, they may have meant something quite different than what he's going to say about it. If he's unknown, listen to this, if he's unknown to them, then they are in complete ignorance of the true nature of that God. And this would be a segue for him. It strikes me that many spiritual leaders today do what Paul did, but for perhaps different reasons. You know, they'll try to relate to the culture, but they do so often staying away from tough issues that are in the Word of God. But what Paul does is that he, he has this cultural point as a way to confront them with their idol worship. I like what Timothy Keller said when he said, properly understood, Christianity is by no means the opiate of the people. It's more like the smelling salts. It can be hard. But let's remember, our fellow human beings that might be on the other side of the tracks when it comes to a Christian worldview are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. We have to often remind ourselves of that. They're blinded by their own ignorance. That's the biblical record. There's some things that people say and do that defy logic. I look at social media, the TV, and I'm like, what? How can people believe that, can say these things? But spiritual darkness does that. And the Apostle Paul refers to that elsewhere in Romans 1 when he said, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So they are headlong into darkness, trying to get as many people as they can to join them, trying to justify their passions, and they're crazyville. But it doesn't matter. Still run headlong towards their passions. How blind can people be? Well, consider Robbie Williams, the British pop singer, who on BBC radio talked about his addictions, and he said, I quote, I haven't had a drink or done drugs for several months. That's a, that's a good thing. We applaud him for that. Uh, and I'm feeling good. I'm enjoying it. It's quite hardcore to get up in front of 60,000 people knowing that when you come off stage, you're not going to get drunk. Instead of drinking, I pray. That's good. That's good. Um, but then he says this. I pray not for long, but I ask Elvis to look after me. I'm not making this up, all right? I've got a tattoo on my arm, Elvis, grant me serenity. Before the gig, we all get in a huddle and we pray to Elvis to look after us while we're on stage. Now my tattoo says Lady Gaga, it's different, but Really, so, okay, think of this. 
He's praying to a dead guy who, by the way, died of addictions so that he can get help with his addictions. What kind of sense is that? Now, I have great compassion for somebody like that, right? I mean, I, I would love to be able to have lunch with Robbie Williams, who probably never will, but, um, and I could say, hey, what if I told you that there's a God who's alive, who could help you far better than a dead Elvis? You know, if we don't know the needs of around, uh, around us, it's going to be hard for us to have these touch points with the gospel. We certainly don't always have the advantage like Paul did of, of seeing the religion so publicly displayed like this. But I have found that simply being in conversation with those people around me are one of the best touchstones that we can have. Not treating people like an object, like a project, but just having a normal conversation, a sharing of lives with one another. And then maybe there can be vulnerable moments. I read recently where actor Woody Harrelson was quoted as saying, I've been nursing this emptiness for far too long. Four or five years ago, I came to the conclusion that I'd made a huge mistake in turning my back on religion because there were seeds in it that were extremely important to me. I would love to be in conversation with somebody like that, to be able to say, maybe God put that yearning in your heart to lead you to the truth. It's a great opportunity when we are in relationship with people like this. And in their vulnerable moments, communicate the gospel. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now let's realize that there were many precepts of Christianity that were at odds with the Athenians, right? We know this. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. I mean, the idea of a, of a single God being Lord over all the world who created all that exists, that was foreign to them. They had many gods. There was only one God. The fact of, of God being Lord of all the universe and all the other universes not being bound in a temple, that was weird to them. Athens was filled with temples to their gods. How can a great God who created humanity, who's sovereign over human beings, be relegated or confined to a temple made by humans. The affirmation that God is both creator and Lord of heaven and earth naturally leads to the conclusion that he cannot be confined to temples made by men. You know, Solomon said this even about the Jewish temple. Now, for different reasons, the temple was built. It didn't house God. God cannot be confined to a building. Really, to be theologically correct, a church today is not the house of God. Now, God owns it all. 
God owns my house on MetaView just like he owns your house. He owns my car. He owns my kids. He owns my body. He owns my wife. They're all his. So in that sense, they're all God's. But God doesn't reside in this building in some special way. This is not God's house like he's not somewhere else. Right? So Solomon said this when he dedicated the Jewish temple. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Such a God does not live in humanly constructed temples. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The real God who is the creator of the universe, including human beings, he has no need of anything. We have need of him. God is self-sufficient, right? He gives us our breath. He gives us our life. Everything we have comes from him through his provision. So how can such a God now be subject to the idols made by human hands? Now, if God is self-sufficient, he doesn't need us, right? He really doesn't. We need him. And you, you find among Christians certain things that are, are just repeated so often, we kind of believe it like, how about this? God can't do anything unless we pray. Really? He needs you before he does something? Or how about this? God created man because he needed someone to worship him. Really? I don't think so. Human pride thinks that God needs us. You know, he needs our money. He needs our involvement. He needs my wisdom to accomplish his will on the earth. Listen, we worship and we pray to God, not because he's needy or lacking, but because he is deserving. We're the needy ones. So in trying to make application for this today, in terms of idols that we look at, I think it's easy for us to, you know, see physical things, and I've already addressed, you know, you look at social media, you can look at materialism, and I mean, we could talk a long time about each of those, and they have become idols for us. But when it comes to any kind of idol, let's realize that there's thinking that goes behind the idol, right? There's a thought process that has to take place before you get to an idol. And I'd like to address that for us, and that there is, there is an idol of thinking, a thought process within our culture that I think messes us up, even many, many Christians. And that is this idea of tolerance and freedom. Okay? And... I'd like for us to start, first of all, with some things that we have in common with everyone and then move from there to the gospel, all right? So let's, let's kind of take Paul's cue, start with some commonality, and move to the gospel. First of all, we acknowledge this. We acknowledge that we have freedom to think and believe as we choose. 
right? All of us have that freedom to choose. All of us can believe whatever we want. We embrace that. We love America for it. That's a good thing, right? Okay, cue up the patriotic music, right? Next, our freedom to choose is rooted in our distinctness as human beings. Animals do not possess the capacity that we have as humans for reasoning of intelligence. Our ability, for instance, for moral reasoning, and what I mean by that is I have maybe a passion for something, a thought to do something, moral reasoning may stop me in my tracks and say, no, you shouldn't do that, but I have this feeling, I have this passion, I have to act on it. Moral reasoning says, no, you don't. Or I have this thought, you know, you might want to slug somebody in the face and you say, no, I'm going to stop myself. That is moral reasoning that does not act on every passion or thought. That's something that's uniquely human, okay? Besides the moral reasoning, there's scientific achievement, there's, you know, this philosophical argumentation that we see displayed in Acts 17. This all points to a superior capacity in human beings. And at this point, I think it's fair to ask ourselves and our other friends when we're in these kinds of discussions, and say, well, now, where do you think this capacity comes from? All right? This, to me, is perhaps the best sticky point to start with when we're having these discussions with people. Because I find that most people grope for an answer. And most answers do not adequately address or answer that question. And I would suggest to you that outside of being made in the image of God, there is no adequate answer. Because being made in God's image, we are moral creatures. And we are given this ability to make moral decisions, and we have a conscience. These are things that God has stamped upon every human being, okay? You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy that. That's because everybody's given a conscience. Everybody has this image of God quality about them because they're human. Maybe some more refined than others, but everybody has it because we're human beings. But trying to explain this distinctness with an evolutionary naturalist worldview, I think puts somebody on a slippery slope. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, see, if our value is not innate from God, but generalized from our capacity as human, you know, humans are, are better than animals. We've kind of evolved and, and have exceeded then animals in our intelligence and these kinds of things then what keeps me then from valuing individuals based upon that same standard? The logical conclusion then is that human beings that are smarter are more valuable than human beings that aren't as smart. So I guess I can value an A student as more valuable than a C student. But something patently rings in our conscience, that's just not right. Well, you would be right with that conclusion. But taking the evolutionary naturalist worldview, what keeps you from drawing that conclusion? 
Not much. Jan and I were watching a thing on the Nazis last night. I mean, it's just unbelievable how they got there, but they use an evolutionary naturalist thinking. I'm not saying every evolutionary naturalist is going to do what the Nazis do, but what I'm saying is they justified it using that kind of reasoning. You see the same thing with the way that our culture deals with sexual morality, uh, with, the, with the way they deal with things like abortion, the evolutionary naturalist worldview. When it wins out, human beings are nothing, no different than a dog. And so we will treat them as such. Just do what dogs do. You eat one another, right? I mean, that is an evolutionary naturalist thought. Survival of the fittest. But something cries unfair to us about this. Something tells us, wait a minute, I don't like that. I don't like that that logic leads me to that. Well, we're glad about that. Here's some other things we could point out. That our behaviors and religious beliefs are the result of our thoughts. Right? Or we could say it this way. Another way of saying it is that all thoughts and beliefs have consequences. Freedom of thought, listen to me, freedom of thought is not equal to having good thoughts or beliefs. All of us have freedom to believe what we want. Freedom to make choices, but not every choice is good. Not every choice or belief is appropriate. If I think that I am not subject to gravity, I am free to think that, right? But when I jump out of a 20-story building, there will be consequences to my thinking that will have an adverse effect on my ability to live. I would propose that thinking gravity exists is a better thought than thinking that gravity does not exist, right? So we can embrace freedom to choose, but that doesn't guarantee that all of our thinking and choices are going to lead to human flourishing, that they're going to benefit us. Timothy Keller said, everybody has to live for something, but Jesus argues that if that thing is not him, it will fail you. It will enslave you. Nobody put this better than the American writer and intellectual David Foster Wallace. Wallace was at the top of his profession. He was an award-winning, best-selling novelist who committed suicide in 2008. But before his death, he gave a famous commencement address in which he said this to the graduating class, because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning to life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. 
He understood. We affirm the right and the freedom to worship, but we have to recognize that not all worship is equal. And there are consequences to what we worship. The next point, our culture's idol of tolerance and freedom of choice in religion, abortion, sexual behavior, gender identity, and a host of others are a rejection of our createdness and God's moral order. Now, I'm not trying to just go out of my way to harp on things, but these are things that are most evident before us. And here's the truth about it. This has touched us all. There's hardly anything on this list that hasn't touched our immediate family. So I'm not, I'm not sitting here trying to condemn us. I'm trying to have us draw the link between the thinking about these early things and about how God relates to it and how it's led to some of these behaviors and, and other thinking. I'm just trying to connect the dots. The favorite Bible verse for those that think this way is what? Do not judge lest you too be judged. I wish I had a dime for every time I've heard that. Okay, but just because you choose does not mean that you've made an appropriate choice. The, the freedom to choose rejection of the gospel is not a worthy choice. The freedom to choose death is not the same as choosing life. The freedom to commit adultery is not as beneficial as faithfulness. The freedom to reject a gender is not the same as being humbly thankful before God, your creator, for how he's made you. Choosing is a freedom that we acquire because we are moral agents made in the image of God. And it's an odd position to declare freedom that has been given to us by God, although we don't call it that, but you know, I have the freedom to choose, blah, 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 right, well you do. And then, and we as a Christian understand, that's given to you because you're made in the image of God. So it's given to you by God, but then they reject what God has revealed to us. But this is man's arrogance. This is human beings saying, I am Lord. I call the shots, and everybody else be damned. I'm going to do what I want, when I want to, and this is what I want, period. This is man's arrogance. They are superior to all others, unwilling to bend a knee to anyone, especially God. But listen. We may look at these things in our culture and we think, man, our culture is going to hell, handbasket. No, 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 no. I see it as a great opportunity, a great opportunity for the gospel. The gospel is the perfect antidote to this kind of idol worship. Listen, if it's true freedom that people want, then how about we start declaring the words of Jesus that truth will set you free? If it's true tolerance that we desire, then how about we offer the grace of God in Jesus Christ? 
that tears down dividing walls, that cuts through cultures and races and politics and brings a people together in unity. It does what no other entity can do. It satisfies the human heart more than any other supposed God. And I'd suggest to you that we don't need a tragedy of 9-11 to show us that all humans are valuable. And by the way, how long did that last? A couple weeks, maybe? Then when you got over the shock of it, it's, you know, life is normal, right? Back to our usual divided selves. We have another option. Let us worship the true God today. Thank him for his revelation, his gospel, his son that provides us what our hearts are truly yearning for. And if that's freedom, baby, we got it right there. If that's understanding that, you know, we have a choice to make, hey, here's the best choice you can ever consider in the gospel. Now, does that mean everybody's going to like it? Of course not. You know better than that. Does that mean you won't be made fun of? Of course not. We know how it ended up for a lot of the apostles. But we can at least look at what's going on in the culture and face people with the truth of this. One of the things we notice, and you probably have heard this, as the um, different camps were being shown or the extermination camps, particularly in Germany. And as they found out the American troops or came in and the Allied troops came in and saw what was taking place, what they did is that they dragged the citizens of the nearby towns who were complicit because they didn't want to say anything about what was going on. Now, maybe they didn't know all the details, but they made the citizens in the surrounding towns come and walk through what was going on and see the dead bodies. And they had to look in the mirror of what have we allowed? What were we thinking? How could we have allowed this to take place? They faced them with their sin. They faced them with their apathy. And that's what truth does. Staring at you like that. Now, did that take guts? Yeah, yeah. Were people upset? You better believe they were. But my friends, that sets you free. The truth. And I, you know, if I was a German, I hope that, you know, I would have said, you know what? I never want to do that again. I want to, I want to maybe dedicate my life to something for good and, and not be complicit like this and not let some political leader just feed me lies and whatever it may cost me. I want to be a Bonhoeffer. I want to stand against what the Fuhrer said. He lost his life for it, but I'd rather be that than complicit with it. So I'm not saying it's all going to turn out good for us. I'm not making that promise. But you know what? Are we willing to say that he is Lord of all? Are we willing to pay the price no matter what may befall us? Because we are standing for the sake of truth and we just don't care about having an attaboy and pats on the back and everybody agree with us? Because that's a choice we often have to make. Maybe at the root of all this is a real call 
of whether we're going to allow Christ to be Lord of our life and him calling the shots.